Welcome. You're listening to another episode of AML Conversations, where we sit down with some of the brightest minds in the financial industry to explore topical matters around financial crime and compliance. We hope you enjoy this discussion and please be sure to subscribe for more. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing hey. today? I'm well, thank you. Thanks, thanks for taking the time. Uh, with me is uh, Jeff Perlman. He's the uh, author of New York Times bestselling author of nine books and uh, also has a uh, podcast that's extremely entertaining, Two Writers Slinging Yang, which I really like. I, I, it's, an, it's an in-depth study between Jeff and other writers. And uh, I've learned a lot from that, Jeff, and I really, uh, pe- people should subscribe to that. It's a, re- it's a really good, uh, there's so many good interviews you do there. But anyway, so I, I really appreciate all this and, and your time. So, you know, my world is um, financial crime prevention, money laundering, uh, working with financial institutions, law enforcement. And when I saw the story, of, I guess it's been a few weeks now, maybe a little bit longer, about the, uh, the fraudulent activity going on in Mississippi that Brett Favre is potentially involved in, although he obviously he hasn't been charged uh, criminally. Uh, I saw that and you had written a book about uh, Brett Favre a few years ago, and you were on Twitter and basically said, don't buy, don't buy my book. You know, don't, don't go there. And that just led me to reach out to you because I wanted to ask two things. One, sort of your mindset about that, given what we've learned about it. And I was actually just on uh, the Mississippi Free Press website, looking through the timelines, and it's pretty, pretty phenomenal what's, what's been going on with that fraud. But also, We've talked in our in our world about pandemic fraud, about um, uh, healthcare fraud, uh, unemployment insurance fraud, all sorts of things that have happened in part because of the pandemic. What's happening with Favre? That's not the pandemic, but it led me to um, your thoughts about that. And then I want to ask you a broader question about uh, fraudulent activity in any of the sports stories that you've covered, just just high level. You know, I knew Favre. Obviously, I wrote a biography of Favre. Um, I knew he had his struggles. I knew he did some really awful things. Number one being sending pictures of his penis to a female reporter. Right. Um, and really taking no real accountability and kind of ruining that woman's life, which is, you know, I feel like should have been the end of him in many ways. And then you're like, well, it can't be worse than that. And you're like, oh, wait, yes, it actually can. Um, the idea that you, you're a lifelong Mississippian you are aware of your state's poverty. You are aware of how important welfare is. You have to be to people in that state. Right. You you know it affects a disproportionately large number of African-Americans in your state. You've spent your life in this diverse world of football where many of your closest teammates and peers were raised in poverty, African-American kids raised in poverty. So you have all this in your background and you decide that it's okay as long as you don't get caught to take millions of dollars from Mississippi welfare recipients in order to help build a volleyball arena on the University of Southern Mississippi's campus because your daughter plays volleyball there. It is so despicable and so disgusting. Also, not for nothing. I'm sure he has the money. Like, he could have used his own money. It was $5 million. Like, that's... Brett Favre has always been a pretty good saver, actually. And, like... He's not one of those guys who's bought a million lavish things and blah, blah, blah. He lives in a pretty simple house relatively in Mississippi. So it's grotesque. It's really grotesque. And um, I haven't written that much about fraud 
I mean, there's a really right. interesting, really interesting podcast I've been listening to uh, that's been out for a while now called uh, Whistleblower about uh, Tim Donahue, the NBA ref. And, yes. sort of, and um, that's obviously really, really fascinating. And there have been guys throughout my career, the point shaving scandal at Tulane with basketball back in the day. Um, but this is really a, a new, to me, a new low for an athlete I've written about or covered, like a really disgusting, disturbing new low. Yeah, you know, I think that uh, you're right about this particular situation. And yeah, the point shaving, I did see the, uh, I think it was a Netflix doc about uh, about the referee and everything. So that, that part is interesting. On Favre again, just real quick, I, mm-hmm. I read something else that he's sort of been, I guess he's denied doing anything uh, inappropriate, but there's not, been, no one has reached out to him, at least I'm not aware, maybe you are, it interviewed him in more in depth about this. What, what do we know about what he said publicly other than to say that he has done nothing wrong? Well, he's said very little publicly. I mean, he's definitely yeah. lawyered up on this. It's not that easy that, you know, he's definitely, first of all, just being blunt, he's not that smart. And in a way, his best defense might be, I'm kind of an idiot. And I didn't right. know, but that that's really hurt when um, you find these text messages to the literally to the governor saying we can't get caught the media is not going to find out about this right like that doesn't help your cause at all um so i just i it's not like you can just call brett Favre and he'll answer and be like let me tell you about what really happened sure sure. he is lawyered up and um i know people i know the different papers that have reported on this have tried reaching out to him because they always end up talking to his attorney so that shows they've tried their best you know, in, in our world, this is a little in the weeds, uh, obviously not a space that you cover, but there's always been a debate about um, domestic corrupt individuals, which, which sounds a little silly given how much we know there is a lot of corruption going on with mm-hmm. local, state, and federal officials. But basically the theory is this, and that is financial institutions, when they open up accounts for people in political office, have to treat that as a more potentially high-risk category if they're foreign officials versus domestic, which I know make, would make no sense to you since you're not in this space. But for years, we have always said, we being those that are in anti-money laundering in terms of training and, and that sort of thing, have said, well, wait a second. Of course, there's bribery and corruption that goes on in, in our country as well as in foreign countries. So when I look at a case like this, the former governor, people that were put in positions of uh, power over agencies, that's the perfect example of what we call uh, a PEP, politically exposed person. So it was interesting to see that as looking at it from my perspective is, wait a second, this is a, just another perfect example of why there is, we know there's corruption, but if a financial institution had these individuals as account holders or even had these government agencies as account holders, they obviously should treat them a little more from a risk standpoint than, than a regular one. So again, I'm a little off the topic, but here's right, but wait, wanted... I can give you from a, from a sports writer's vantage point. What I see when I see the governor and different people involved in this is uh-huh. what a bunch of losers, like right. the idea that like you are so enamored by this guy because he could throw a football a long way. And because he played for the green Bay Packers that you are willing to surrender so much in ethics in dignity in sheer decency because a guy was a football player it is so like 
Phil Bryant, the former governor of Mississippi, like, how old are you? Are you 12? Like, what is right. wrong? It's, I can't even get past. No, I'm being serious about this. Like, yeah, sure. I can't sure. get past how big of a loser you have to be to be at that age. Like, people say to me, have you lost, you know, as a sports writer, do you still have the same boyish enthusiasm for sports? No, because I'm not 12 anymore. And I've seen behind the curtain. And I know, like, I've met these guys and I know they're flawed and they're just people and they, they have their fun on this field and then they move on. And the idea that you would surrender so much of your dignity and pride and ethical substance because a guy threw long passes for the Green Bay Packers and is now in the Pro Football Fame is beyond pathetic to me. No, I, I totally agree. I wasn't laughing at the situation, but I'm agree, agreeing with you. So a couple things. Uh, I do want to talk about your new book, uh, The Last Folk Hero, a Life and Myth of Bo Jackson, a very interesting book. Uh, uh, a, you know, a very interesting person to begin with, given he's done what very few others have done. And I know, you know, the sports space better than me, but I think, you know, Deion Sanders played two sports. Mm -hmm. I'm an old, I'm an old Nick fan. Dave DeBuscher was a baseball oh, nice. player. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he played two, but obviously Bo Jackson set a standard that was phenomenal. So really looking forward to that. And toward the end of this, I want to get you to talk a little bit more <laughs> about the book that, that will be out later this month. But there was two other um, uh, books I wanted to highlight. One is the Showtime about the Lakers, uh, the uh, the 1980s uh, Lakers, because obviously, as you've said on your podcast, and I've watched the series, it's a series now on HBO, which is has to be super exciting for you. You've talked a lot about how how you've enjoyed that whole uh, the whole thing. I wanted to ask you though. I watched all the episodes. Really liked it. What's your take on what Kareem and others and Magic are doing in terms of sort of the competitive documentaries that they that they put out, which I have not watched, by the way. I've done not for any reason. I just haven't had time. But what's your give us a sense of your take on that? It has to be interesting because it's because you're sort of in the middle of it all. Yeah, I mean, first of all, and I really mean this. I'm not just saying that. Like, good for them. Like, if they're able to capitalize off of this and have products of their own, I I have no problem with that. I say good for them. That's great. Um, Kareem of Georgia Bar deserves as much attention as he can get. Like right. he really does. He was, he's to me, he's the greatest basketball player of all time. He's never gotten his due. Uh, part of that was personality. Part of it was circumstance. So great. Um, the one thing I will say is, you know, I interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people for Showtime, the book magic and Kareem both turned down interviews. Um, I know when it came to the show winning time, they reached out to both of them. They both turned down any opportunity to be involved or to, you know, contribute. So I'm always a little when I'm always when people um, say, oh, this show, blah, blah, blah. They didn't get this right or they didn't get that right. It's like, well, I called you for the book, man. And you freaking said no. Right. And then you were called for the show and you said no. So you kind of lose a little bit of your right to complain about your depiction when you had every opportunity to be involved. So I find that always a little bit. Uh, off-putting. I have no beef with either of them. They're great. They're heroes. Uh, sure. They live exemplary lives. No beef whatsoever. I just don't really buy the criticism from them in a serious manner. No, that makes sense. Uh, the The other book, uh, again, I've read a, 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 several of your books, but the other book that was really, for me, really interesting because it seemed sort of out of left field was Football for a Buck. It wasn't out of left field, by the way. It was, it was a really yeah. well-done, researched book about the USFL, which many of us obviously remember in the mid '80s, was uh, actually a pretty viable at the time, at least early on, uh, league that was given the NFL potentially a run for its money. But 
the the part that I found uh, interesting, and you've on Twitter you've mentioned this several times, is the role that Donald Trump plays in this. Obviously, he owned the New Jersey Generals. Uh, your book makes clear, and I think we all know that he was never interested in the USFL per se. Mm-hmm. He always wanted an NFL franchise. Uh, and at the end of the book, that you know, no spoiler here. USFL won in court, but they won a dollar. So uh, when you look at that, then you could argue it was fraudulent in that, uh, you know, Trump never really wanted to be part of the USFL going forward. He wanted to use that as a stepping stone. That in and of itself isn't fraudulent. But um, you, you've made it clear that you feel this is a perfect, we should have known what this guy was about when he did that back then, right? It was very weird researching the book as he was running for president, because um, if you remember, he was talking about how we were going to build a wall and Mexico was going to pay for it. Like that was one of his things, right? The Mexico sure. wall, we're going to build it. They're going to pay for it. And I'm researching the book. And there's a point when his team, the New Jersey Generals, they signed Doug Flutie out of Boston College, a Heisman Trophy winner. Mm-hmm. And um, Trump signs it, holds a press conference. And then he sends a letter to the USFL commissioner and the other owners saying, I have done the USFL a great service by bringing Doug Flutie into the fold. He's paying amazing dividends already, which he really wasn't. And he said, "Um, because this is a league-wide assist, I expect all the other owners to contribute to his salary. So 30 years before he said, I'm going to build the wall in Mexico, pay for it, he basically told his people and then insisted, I signed Doug Flutie and the rest of the owners are going to pay for it. And they had the same response as Mexico, which was go to hell. And there's just a million. I mean, he was the league was kind of it was a great spring football league. I'm not saying it would have survived forever, but it was a great league. And he came in. He wanted an NFL franchise. The NFL didn't want him. He saw the best opportunity as if we merge force a merger between the two leagues and then I'll get my team in Manhattan. So he he did everything he could to convince the other USFL owners that they should move to fall, take on the NFL directly. He lied and lied and lied and lied about a million different things. They end up moving to fall or they were about to move to fall. He said we should sue the NFL in an antitrust suit because they've monopolized television in the fall. He leads the lawsuit. He makes himself the star witness. The jurors can't stand him. They find him just repugnant. And um, the USFL winds up winning the case because they were right. The NFL was monopolizing TV. But right. the jurors were so unsympathetic to the USFL and their actions that they wound up winning a dollar. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an incredible story. And, you know, we, many of us, we lived through it and saw it. But when you, when you identified just the whole process, it's a really great read. And that's, nice. I'm, I'm surprised they haven't made that into a movie of some sort, you know, because I think that, that would be, I think, a pretty compelling uh, story as well. But, um, you know, I think people, um, I've had people approach me. And I think the thing is, I think there's a real Trump fatigue so yeah, I'm not yeah. sure the idea of sitting through a two hour movie that has Trump as his main featured star. I don't know. I don't think yeah. I'd want to watch it. Yeah. So uh, let's go and let's talk about the new book. So the last folk hero, uh, the life and myth of Bo Jackson, um, obviously all excited about uh, getting it and reading it uh, to high level. What, what are we going to be able to learn from that? Besides how, how, what an amazing athlete Bo Jackson was. Uh, did you, get a chance i'm sure you interviewed like you always do a ton of folks were you able mm-hmm. to interview him was he supportive just just high level what what can you share with us all right so i interviewed 720 people which is definitely my record for a book i wow. uh, yeah. early on in the process i sent him a letter 
uh, asking if he'd sit down for an interview and a bunch of my books. He called me a few days later. He was very nice. And he said, no, he said um, he, he doesn't want to do a book. I mean, this, I wasn't asking him to do the book with me. But he's like, I don't right, really right. want to do a book. People call me all the time. I don't mind that you're doing the book, but I'm not going to help. And whenever someone says that, I'm like, that's totally fine, but I'm going to dig hard. And the thing that kind of made this project took it to a different level is Bo wrote an autobiography, wrote in quotations. You know, we did an autobiography with Dick Schaap in 1990 okay. called Bo Knows Bo. And it was a huge seller. And after the book was done, Dick Schaap, who really wrote the book, but did it with Bo, donated all his notes and audio tapes from the project to the Auburn Library. And all this material was sitting in the basement of the Auburn Library, untouched and dusty after 30 years. Wow. And I was able to get it. And it's basically, I don't know, 400 pages of Bo Jackson talking in his prime, being very candid. A lot of stuff never wound up in the book. A lot of details never wound up in the book. I have all these audio tapes of Bo Jackson talking. And it was an absolute goldmine. It was just an absolute goldmine. So that was huge. And I think, I mean, the things I walked over, this isn't like your typical, like, like Bo Jackson isn't a scumbag. Bo Jackson's a good guy. Right. The thing, the thing that I just think, I've never approached a book this way. I just want people to remember how ridiculously, preposterously one of a kind phenomenal he was. He truly was. And like, just an example, when he was in college, he ran a 41340. And the guy was 220 pounds, a 41340. He then wow. went to the Raiders and in pads ran a 417 on grass. Like, he was ridiculous. When he was in high school, he went to McAdory High School in Bessemer, Alabama. He won the state decathlon, sprained his ankle doing so. And then the very next day, struck out 13 batters in the state cha- in the state playoff game. Like he in high school, he stole 90 out of 91 bases. He uh, he once leapt over a parked Volkswagen. Um, it's on and on the crazy stuff this guy did. And he was like he was raised in abject, abject, abject poverty, where he would oftentimes go to school in socks and his sister's sneakers. Like it was like wow. It's a phenomenal story of a guy rising from the ashes and truly becoming, in my opinion, the greatest athlete we've ever seen. Right. Wow. What What does he do now? I, I don't think I've seen. Uh, is he doing any sports casting? Anything? What What is he doing for a living now? It's kind of the beauty of the guy. He uh, He runs a bunch of businesses. He's really in the food business. But the cool thing is, is like he lives in people think he lives in Alabama. He doesn't. He lives in suburban Chicago. He. Uh, He's like a guy who like shovels his own driveway and likes to hunt and fish. He doesn't have a trophy room with all his stuff. He's not a guy who sits there going, oh, I could have been so-and-so. Like, he's just a guy who did his thing, retired, tried his hand at acting briefly, tried a bunch of different businesses, is very, very charitable. After the Uvalde shooting, he paid for a lot of the funerals of the victims. Like, he's a really decent, he's a really decent human being who just wanted to vanish. Wow. That's, that's, that's amazing. Hey, uh, just before I let you go, uh, just your process. And, and again, I've listened to you talk about it on, on many of your podcasts. And you just said this book alone, you interviewed over 720 people. When you're, when you're, when you're writing a book, do you go in with a theme in your mind? Like if you decide, all right, I'm going to do Bo Jackson. Or when you decide you're going to do Walter Payton, uh, Bonds, those sorts of things. Do you go in with a theme or you go in with, I'm going to write about this person and find out everything I can't, and then sort of the, the theme comes out itself? I mean, do you do outlines? I mean, you do a ton of interviews, obviously. You do a lot of research. But I'm just curious, when you decide I'm doing the book on X, mm-hmm. wh- how do you approach that? Just Is it different for each book, too, I guess? 
All right, so I never do an outline. I learned early on in my career, like the worst thing you can do when you're writing about someone is go in with a preconceived notion. So to me, it's just a big, big, big blank slate. And what happens is you start doing your research, you start calling people, you start digging through old articles, archives, books, et cetera, and you start forming stuff, right? Like you, example, like Bo Jackson, it takes a million different twists and turns, which is really funny. I'm like, there was a, um, he was flying with the Chicago White Sox one time when he was on that team. And they were returning from a game against the Angels, and their plane caught on fire. And there's a scene in the book, I actually opened the book with it, where the plane is on fire, players are going crazy, people are praying and screaming. And all of a sudden, the cockpit door opens, and Bo Jackson comes walking out. And he's like, guys, don't worry, everything's going to be okay, it's under control, blah, blah, blah. Cool as a cucumber, like almost like, you know, Harrison Ford or John Wayne or whoever, you know. And like, it's not like I planned when I went into this book, I'm going to write about this plane crash. I don't even know existed. Like you let the narrative take you where it goes. I'm like, I learned a ton walking the streets of Bessemer, Alabama and just talking to old neighbors and finding right. people. And so I'm a black going with a blank slate, no preconceived. I could, could have found out that Bo Jackson was a, uh, you know, right. was a serial killer who liked to eat pigs with raw. And all of a sudden your book takes you in that direction. That's not true, but you just have to have an open mind and a blank slate. I, that's great. Uh, I'm going to get you out of here on this. And this is a little bit of a le- left turn, but I think okay. you'll get it. Um, with what's going on in the world in terms of local press? All these papers have gone out of business. I know you started out with a paper in Nashville and you've talked a lot about your early career writing for newspapers. As a, as a former reporter, and obviously you're still a reporter to a degree, given you write these books, uh, do you have a, a sense of optimism at all? Because it's it's pretty scary for those of us on the sidelines watching the fact that, you know, the newspaper business, no one's re- reading regular papers anymore. I mean, I get three of them, but I'm sure I'm a dinosaur. So uh, what's your take on, on what's happening with, with local press, besides the obvious, that obviously a lot of it's going away? Because it seems to me you want to try to go after governors and local officials uh, you know that's not all the press do you're not going to have that ability anymore if everything is nationalized so what's your take about local press and what's happening in in this country i would love to say i'm very optimistic but i'd say i'm the opposite um it's awful it's awful for you have a, a double assault really you have local newspapers closing and dying advertising revenues drying up um, I teach college journalism. You have fewer and fewer students who want to go into journalism. You can see right. it because they're like, what's the point? Where am I, how am I going to make money? How am I going to eat? And then you have this sort of, I hate to say it, but like this Republican assault on quote unquote fake news and an increasing number of people who just refuse to believe anything that doesn't support their own side. And that goes Democrat, Republican, where it's so fragmented that if you're a Republican, you're going to watch Fox news or Newsmax because they will reinforce your opinions. If you're a liberal, You'll go to MSNBC so you can watch whoever and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you just build your own anger. And we have very little dialogue anymore. There's no, you know, appointment viewing, uh, Walter Cronkite, Peter Jennings, Tom Brokaw, uh, Ted Koppel. There's none of that anymore. It's all slanted, biased, reaffirm my beliefs. And it's incredibly, incredibly depressing. So I'm looking for a Superman just like you are, but I'm not happy about it. All right. No, I, I, I sadly agree. Agree with you. So, Jeff Perlman, thanks so much, folks. You should follow Jeff Perlman on Twitter. It's at Jeff Perlman. Uh, go to jeffperlman.com for information on some of the other books. But the book that's coming out at the end of this month, The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. 
thanks so much for spending some time. Uh, stay safe out there and appreciate all the work you're doing, man. Thanks, John. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another episode of AML Conversations brought to you by AML RightSource. To make sure you're staying up to date with what's going on in the industry, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast to get the latest episode.